So this morning I'm going to be sharing this time, what do we call this these days, a sermon, a message, a something. Whatever this is, I'm going to be sharing it this morning with my very good friend and longtime colleague, Bobby Lancelotti. Stand up just a second, Bobby, so we can see who you are. Welcome, Bobby, if you would. Bobby and Denise and Debbie and I have been friends for, I don't know, a couple of decades at least and have worked together in uh, various settings. So we've been taking these first few weeks after Pentecost to think some about the person and work of the Spirit. And this morning, I want to think some about how it is that the Spirit carries on in us the work of Jesus, training us for a way of life, that the natural outcome or overflow of that would be a care for all the nations. And so if we think of the big picture of Holy Trinity and our few years together, I mean, it, this has been kind of a, a job to start this church. Uh, for the vast majority of us, we've had to figure out what it means to be Anglican and what it means to be liturgical and how those things might be genuine spiritual practices for us that actually foment the life of God in us. Um, we, you know, we've had to figure out worship things and the challenge of being a community where people live everywhere. And one of the places that I think we just now need to start dipping our toes into the water is in some of the global issues that God might call us to. So I just want to help us get started down that road this morning, as always, in a non-anxious, peaceful way. And I say that because there is a growing trend. I was with a well-known missiologist, a, I don't know, a few months ago now, and he's somebody who has worked a great deal with what you might, kind of, you might call kind of new, new tries at church and missional communities. Uh, these young leaders, typically in their 20s, who will go into an area like, you know, these six blocks of Columbus, Ohio, or these, you know, 14 blocks of Boston or whatever, and say, you know, we're just going to really serve this part of our community. And what we're beginning to notice is a rapid onset of what's being called justice fatigue. And just a couple of weeks ago, I hosted a meeting of key leaders from uh, all over America at Beth's house. And one of these key leaders uh, works for International Justice Mission. She, I don't remember her exact title now, but she has a significant title there. And she, without me asking, was, just began to tell me about how they're starting to have to have weekly Bible studies and prayer times now to help all these 20-somethings who come to work for IJM and pretty soon are experiencing justice burnout. So burnout is not just tired. Um, burnout is not even exceptionally tired. Burnout has to do with having really high idealistic hopes. And by the way, I don't use that word idealistic in a pejorative term. I mean, I think it's actually good to have ideals. But burnout comes from having very high idealistic hopes followed by unmet expectations that become chronic. And when those unmet expectations become chronic, they turn into a kind of frustrated, hopeless despair. Last night, I was uh, doing a wedding where my friend Steve was, and we're out on the patio talking about this, and he said to me, yeah, I just saw this uh, article the other day, um, Friday, about electronic vehicles and their hope for you know, being a, a blessing to the globe. Except for if you just start scratching underneath that, you find out that the places we have to get lithium don't find this good news. It destroys their water sources. It invites corruption. 
I mean, just a big part of what's going on in the Congo right now, for instance, has to do with supplying the West with things the West thinks it needs. And then it just produces all kinds of corruption. So whether it's political corruption or tribal corruption or economic corruption or the corruption of water sources, we can all just start feeling like, is there anything that's really going to work here? I saw this morning that, that over a generation, so you know, 30 or 40 years, working on this, we tend to gain 30% efficiency in energy use. But with global population growth, we triple what we need to heat and cool and light. And thus, we literally fall further and further behind. And so what can happen is we begin to think there's an overwhelming number of different types of horrible things happening in the world. And they have this seemingly overwhelming reach and severity of evil. And so how can we solve them? But what I want to say this morning, taken from what we hear in Peter and in Jesus, is that need, need is only one aspect of what's happening here. The other is our simple obedience and alignment to God in his kingdom. And how we align with him in what he's doing with reference to that need, we experience a transformation that we cannot experience in any other way. In other words, there's a transformation available to us that isn't found in silence. And it's not found in contemplation or solitude. It's not found in liturgy. There's an aspect of our transformation that is only available to us in engagement with the other. Both the other, capital O, God, and the other, those who are in need. I mean, th I mean, this is obvious as soon as I say it, but not even Jesus eradicated all the evil from the earth. But keeping it real, I swear I want to. <laughs> I mean, don't you? Like, what's up with that? Like, I want to. Like, if I had the cosmic magic wand, it became over. All evil banished. No more corruption, no more injustice. So if we're going to be spiritually and intellectually honest, we have to ask, well, what's going on here? Why in the wisdom of love and love of God does he allow rival kingdoms to exist and has allowed rival kingdoms to exist? And I think the first thing this alerts us to is this, that humanity is not a human project. Humanity is God's project. Always has been, it remains so, and always will be. And thus, though this is hard for someone like me, our engagement with God and his world is not simply to fix it. I mean, I would like to. But apparently, that's not the only thing that's going on here. And so what this suggests to us, and this is the notion that I want to show you now in these readings, is that in the midst of God and his kingdom and rival kingdoms, we have a space and a place to be trained for our hearts to be reformed and our desires reordered that we don't have in any other way than in serving the poor. That there's some important aspect to the, to the shaping of God's people towards this trajectory of Revelation 22.5. That in the new heavens and the new earth, 
the scripture says they will rule and reign with him forever and ever. So apparently, from the trajectory of divine intention, whatever God's reasons for creating, to its telos, to its fulfillment, with the renewed people of God and the renewed heaven and the new earth, for some reason, in that band of time, the ups and downs of human history make sense. That they somehow work with what it is that God's doing. And so what I want to help us do here at Holy Trinity is to begin to engage with this without the paralysis or hopelessness that comes from the bad news, but also in a way that we learn to manage expectations and abandon outcomes to God. Easier said than done for someone like me, but let's try. So we manage expectations and we abandon outcomes to God. All right, so how do we begin to dip our toe in this water? Well, if you look at your Acts reading, you see this well-known sentence from Peter. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. And this, I think, alerts us to the number one thing that our souls need to grow into, and that is to stop, whether it's purposeful or inadvertent, dehumanization. When you look at the way an ugly spouse, sorry, when you look at the way a spouse talks in an ugly manner to another spouse, what predates that in a moment's time is a dehumanization. You cannot talk to someone like that if you respected them. It's not possible. So when you think of ugly human behavior, whether it's conscious or subconscious, what's underneath it is dehumanizing of the other. And Peter's lived with this. His whole world and culture lived with a dehumanization of, for instance, Samaritans or barbarians or Scythian or slaves. This is why Paul talks like he talks in his letters. They're, they're, Peter and Paul and these early followers of Jesus are having OMG moments, like hashtag no favoritism. And, and it's rocking their world and it's core to us. That I know, we, you know, because we've lived now with, with generations of things being marketed to us, and in a sense, Bobby and I are engaging in that this morning, that we can even, that can even cause a kind of dehumanization, right? Like how many times you've heard people say, I'm sick of people showing me poor children and manipulating my emotions on TV, right? So even that can feel like something that we wanted, that can cause a kind of dehumanization as we try to distance ourselves from that. But we have also, in your Acts reading there, a model where Peter had seen Jesus obviously live his life. And so he says there that we, we saw that by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus went around doing good. So he didn't fix all human evil, but his life was defined by, when Peter wanted to summarize it, of going around and helping people, you might say and healing all who were under the power of or beaten down by the devil, or you might say they're sources of evil. So there's like a, a mental image for us to live into, but it raises the image, how do we train ourselves into a way of life that caring for the nations is a natural outflow? And this, of course, emerges from the Great Commission, where Jesus says, go make learners. That is to say, train and develop everyone you meet. 
that they would acquire new habits of their heart and new habits of their life. That you would learn to habituate the ways of your master. This is, this is I mean, the, the Greek term here is just loaded with imagery. Go make learners. You see what I mean? Not go make someone who learned, period. Go make learners, dot, dot, dot. Go make learners, dash, dash. People who are giving themselves as an apprentice to a master who are engaging in indirect effort off the spot. Probably more than one of you in this room have wondered sometimes, why do we pray the prayers of the people? Quote, you know, this thing called the prayers of the people. Well, because you're training your soul off the spot. So that on the spot, having prayed over and over and over again, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Or God, look after all of your creation. That having prayed those things over and over and over again, week in and week out, the idea is that they would rehabituate our hearts. So that we're doing little trainings off the spot. So that we're becoming learners who can do what needs to be done on the spot. So then Jesus says, train them in this way of life. Train them in the things that you saw me doing. This organic relational connection that I had to the Father and how I expressed it for the good of others, that's your model. This is the way of life that you're trying to learn your way into. And then Jesus says, instruct them in the practice of all that I've taught you. That is to say, there's a way of life here. And that discipleship is not merely, you know, a sort of fill-in-the-blank Bible study, as, as helpful as that might be. But it can't be reduced to that. A fill-in-the-blank Bible study might be an appropriate component of discipleship. But discipleship can't be reduced to that. Discipleship is learning to practice, Jesus says, all that I taught you. And then he says, finally, baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. And I just want to suggest to you, just try this on for size, that I don't think that means or can be reduced to what we often do up here with water and me or, you know, some priest saying that we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. To be baptized means to be immersed in. This text means something like, here's the key to all this. Immerse yourself in the triune reality of which baptism is the public sign. It's not the thing. The thing is immersing a human life in the triune reality in the same way that Jesus was immersed in the triune reality. And this is, by the way, his explanation for how and why he served. So if we were to ever ask, well, how and why would we get involved with, for instance, clean water projects? Well, what if we said something? Here's what Jesus said or John says of Jesus, Jesus, knowing from where he'd come and knowing where he was returning to, that triune reality, got up, went to the back corner, found a basin, washed his disciples' feet. Well, what if we said, I'm immersed in a triune reality. Thus, I'm always safe and I'm always cared for. The Lord is my shepherd. I don't have to give in to my disordered desires. And knowing that that's the reality we come from, we can then engage in the world knowing that that's the world we're going back to. That's the reality we're going back to.
So immerse them, Jesus says, in the triune reality. And then, that, then he concludes with, and I just want to suggest to you, how about this as a basis for dipping our toes into the water of, of global issues? And I'll be with you as you do this, day after day, right up to the end of the age. And this is Jesus saying that my presence, my power will be with you. And it is the antidote to justice burnout. Doing this in my presence, in my goodness, in my grace, and that knowledge of being sent from this immersion in the Trinitarian reality out into the world, returning to that reality, this is the space in which human beings can actually do this. So Bobby, if you'll come, I know you've been doing this and have some things to say to us to help us dip our toes in this water. Well, if there ever can be polar opposites, it's Todd and I, in some ways. Todd's been a seminarian, he writes books, and graduated from college, high seminary. Uh, I went to modern day high school and played football, played football. Thank you. Santa Ana, we beat Santa Ana, by the way. And um, went to college, I just didn't go to class, and uh, Never graduated. At 26, I had a powerful experience in the front seat of my 51 uh, pickup truck with my dog Amigo in the back and my surfboard. And Jesus uh, apprehended me, literally. And I've ne literally never been the same. So uh, don't go to school to have education. Uh, I got more in the last 10 minutes. I probably got more in the last uh, 20 years. I don't know. I just, love, I just love the sense of God's goodness, you know. And here, you know, Todd says, about justice burnout, and here I'm going to talk to you about justice. And so, um, but I think I'm going to bring a perspective that I think at the end I'll tie it together that I think it's helpful because, um, yeah, I am just so blessed to be here. Thanks, Todd. I love you, man. Love Debbie. Love so many of my friends here. And it's really an honor to be here. So Life Water, it's not Charity Water. That's a different organization, Todd. It's okay, man. I know you're a seminarian and stuff, and that's okay. Life water, different. But you know, there are over 600 water organizations, by the way, worldwide. About, about 300 of them are faith-based. About half of them are. About half of them aren't. And all of them do incredibly amazing work. So, uh, yeah. So thank you so much for the privilege of being here today. So we can go to the next slide, Daniel. So if you believe like I do, that every human being is creating the image and likeness of God, you know that that means that each person has inherent worth and value. And uh, the reality is, for 660 million people on the planet Earth today, they lack access to clean water. That's one out of every nine person on the planet to have access to clean, safe water. You know, as a result of that, six, and again, just when you hear me say these things, this is not a guilt. I want you just to kind of get the gravity of the situation, because sometimes, again, our worldview, right? We got our Western glasses on, we've got, you know, we live in Orange County, you know, but just think about this. Today, as we sit here, 1,600 children are going to die from preventable waterborne diseases. That's one child every 60 seconds. You know, let that sink in for a while. You know what that's the equivalent of? That's the equivalent of four 747s loaded to the brim full of children crashing into the earth every day, and we know how to prevent that. You say, well, Bobby, if this is such a crisis, why aren't we aware of it? Because this dying is happening in the far-off corners of the world. It's happening in places that are unreached and underserved places. 
But the beauty of the gospel is that, you know, God calls us to be a voice for the voiceless, right? We're called to be this advocate of the gospel. We're called, you know, to be his hands and his feet. We're to bear his image as his image bearer, and we're to bear his heart for the very least of these. And so that's what breaks my heart, and I'm sure it engages our hearts as well, that we want to do these acts of justice. Justice, folks, in a very simple uh, definition, is making wrong things right. It's wrong that 1,600 children are dying every day from preventable waterborne diseases. You know, the number one killer of children in Africa is, uh, is number one, is pneumonia. But you know what the number two is? Chronic diarrhea from preventable from waterborne diseases. Number two, three is cholera. Again, a waterborne disease. I was thinking, I was praying the other day, Todd, and I was thinking, I'm going to write, I've been doing blogs and vlogs, which is a crazy thing. I've never done that, so you'd be proud of me, by the way. And, and, and I, I came up for this title for this blog. You ready? Jesus hates diarrhea. That's a good one, right? Think of John 10, 10. Jesus says, I came to you, might have life and life more abundant. And you know, but the thief comes to rob and kill and destroy. And that's the whole kingdom dynamic, the good and evil Todd was just talking about, that we can do something about. And so that's the reality. Think about this. 2.5 billion people today, that's B, billion with a B, don't have access to a toilet. That means, or a latrine. That means open defecation. That's one in every three people on the planet. And so that what happens when you have open defecation? I mean, just you let your imagination, that's how germs spread, that's how disease spreads, that's how, so the more you can help people with the sanitation as well as hygiene and water, say that life water, we just don't do water. Water is like the last thing we do. We come into villages where under, we bring hope to hard places. We go to places where no one else is serving, in the far off places, far off regions where no one else is going. And we teach, we embed ourselves in the villages and we teach them basic sanitation practices, hygiene practices, and then the last thing we do is build a well. Because 20% of waterborne diseases are, are cured when you give safe, clean water, but you add sanitation and hygiene and clean water, it goes up to the 95 percentile. See how important that is? Some things that we just so take for granted. You see, water's the easiest thing to do. That just takes money. It's $6,000 to do a well, but to change someone's behavior is difficult. If you've never washed your hands in your whole life, if you've never used a, a latrine in your life, that, anybody here any have any bad habits? You know, we went to... Daniel's got some good up there. He's got a couple. You know, we all do, right? And a transformation takes time, doesn't it? And so we work with people and work with people. It's a two to three year process, even before the water point happens. But we believe in empowering people and, and, and giving them hope and dignity. And that's what we do. So if you want to go to the next slide, uh, Daniel. Yeah, our, our, our motto, our thing is we're not going to stop till every child has safe water. That's what kind of gets us up in the morning, that, that, that causes Jesus, I know this is your heart. It's our heart. And we want to serve vulnerable children and families. Uh, one of the, the things that's interesting in, in Christianity today, in the next slide, about a year and a half ago, this was, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this magazine, uh, two leading economists, one from Stanford and Berkeley, did a year-long study, and they, they looked at several interventions in the third world, and they said, what's the most cost-effective way to alleviate poverty? And they looked at these incredible organizations doing incredibly wonderful things, and they came up with this, that the number one way to alleviate poverty, it, the most cost-effective way, is bringing clean, safe water to rural villages. See, folks, poverty is this downward spiral, right, where you get sick and your children are getting sick so they can't go to school and, and you have to take care of your children so you are staying home and you can't work on your farm. But, but all of a sudden you give people, you know, safe, clean water and sanitation, hygiene, and they're, they're getting better and they're going to school and they're, they're getting better jobs and they're coming back and serving the community and the folks are working, able to have time to work on their particular plot of land. You see, it's a sustainable model. And it kind of raises people up out of poverty. It's, it's long-term, but it, but it really does work.
And so this article in Christianity Today mentions LifeWater quite a bit. And on the cover, that's one of our projects that we are, one of the countries are working in presently, which is Cambodia. We work in six countries, two in Southeast Asia, in Cambodia and in Bangladesh, we have programs, and then in Malawi, in the Congo, Uganda, and Ethiopia in, in Africa. So go to the next slide, Daniel. And, and all of our programs start with basic things that each and every person in a village can do with the help of a life water trainer. So we teach people, we come in, we have what's called our MWASH program, which is our Missional Water Access Sanitation Hygiene. That's written by some really bright people. And it's written, obviously, people are, are um, they can't read, so we have to do everything within, with graphs and pictures and story. And uh, so we weave the story of Jesus through our curriculum, and we teach them how to build their own hand-washing devices. We call that a tippy-tap. And so you teach them how to build a very simple thing, how to make soap, or, or if they don't have soap, the material for that, how to do use ash to wash your hands. So very simple, basic things, and we teach them the importance of hygiene. And then we teach them how to build their own latrine. Again, we don't do things for people that they can't do for themselves. There's too much when helping really hurts. When we go in and we enable people instead of empowering people. We believe in empowering people is what we do. So we teach them how to build their own latrine, and people do. We teach them about how to store their water safely, how to, how to build a drying rack. You know, do you think, what do you mean a drying rack? For your dishes, just to bring the dishes up off the ground and, and teach them how to wash them and allow the sun to decontaminate them and, and how to contain their animals. And you think, you know, you want to teach them how, why it's important to have a clean compound to keep it free, defecation free, you know, and have a clean, safe village. And when people start doing this, you guys, what happens is, it's so beautiful. They start developing the dignity that poverty has stripped them of. You see, poverty is an evil taskmaster. It beats you down and makes you feel uh, uh, depressed and, and rejected and thinking, how can God love me? But all of a sudden, you start getting safe water and sanitation. You start grabbing dignity and hope. And, you know, you think, my God does care about me. He does love me. It's a it literally lifts people from that place. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So we're not going to stop every person that has safe water. Then when we do, let me show you the next slide. And that, then when they do everything they can do, we do what we can do, and we provide the well. And, uh, you know, in Africa, they say, you know, there's no party like a well party. And I've been to several of them where, you know, you cut it, because usually people now that have walked one, two, sometimes three, four hours, and it's mostly the women and young girls that are walking carrying five-gallon jerry cans, and those jerry cans, you know, water weighs six pounds per gallon, so that's 30 gallons. Have you ever carried a 30-gallon uh, container, you know, two, three, four miles, or four hours, rather, walking? I mean, it's incredibly difficult. But now they have a source of clean, safe water right in their village or with their school, and it's an incredibly transformational thing, and, and people love it, and they celebrate that. Well, let me, um, let me tell you a story, and this is where I'll end up. I think I'm going to be on time, Todd, too, so I'm proud of me, dude. This wonderful lady, her name is Esnino, and uh, that's her child, Christopher, in the back, and they live in the West RC area of, of Southeast Ethiopia, and uh, our, our, uh, our CEO, Justin Narducci, he's 34 years old, he's an amazing guy, I love him. He uh, was just recently in, uh, in Ethiopia, and as he likes to do, we, we take these baseline surveys and we go back and make sure. So we, we're a data-driven organization because we want to be the best that we can be. And um, he was interviewing uh, several people, and he happened just to meet Esnino. And he said, Esnino, just in a casual conversation, what's the, been the greatest transformation you've seen or the greatest change since you have you know, health and hope and your children are doing well, and you're doing well, you have a latrine, and your kids are healthy? And she looked at him, and she kind of stared at him, and she goes, and this is very powerful. She said, we're no, I'm no longer afraid, or we're in the village, we're no longer afraid to name our children. And he said, what? He said, yeah, we're no longer afraid, because the, the mortality rate was so high among the babies dying that they wouldn't, because of their emotional wreck of their heart, 
They, they weren't even naming their kids. Now, again, I don't, I, I don't, that breaks my heart to hear that. And what do you think it does to the heart of God? You know? And so that, that's, that's Esnito. And I just love, love, love her story. So the last slide is just simply this, is just uh, we are talking about like a partnership, something we can do together, sponsor well, or maybe adopt a village or do something. I, I love to take Todd and Beth, anybody wants to come with me to Africa and, and come check it out. But I was thinking of something, Todd, that really tied your message together. And, you know, I'm, I love Mother Teresa and I love my Catholic background. And, and Mother Teresa had an incredible quote. You know, she said, there's very many, many people today that want to do big things for God. But there's very, very few people who want to do small things for God. But you say, therefore, you know, small things done with great love can change the world. And you see, folks, it's not a matter of getting burnt out on justice. It's all of us doing those small things. Hey, loving your neighbor, being nice to that single mom down the street. I mean, it's local, nationally, global. It's, it's being his hands and his feet, right? Because the church today, what, we're more known for what we're against than what we're for. And we're for the lost. We're for the, those that are on the margins. We're for the broken. We're for those that don't have clean, safe water. This should be the passion of the church. And one thing I love about Todd's organization, that, that Todd, you don't know this, I, I always sign my letters or my emails for years for others. And when I saw that Todd named his thing is for the sake of others, I thought, oh my gosh, that's it. See, folks, we exist to live and die for bigger things than ourselves. And that's the beauty that keeps us going. Each one of us can encourage each other and just, we can be nice, we can smile once in a while. Hey, there's a huge justice thing, right? We can be kind, we can be generous. And this is what makes a difference. And so my prayer, my heart is that we would have a, a partnership and a friendship. We can work together to mobilize the church outward to make a difference locally, nationally, and globally. And so thank you so much for the opportunity to come and share, to be a part of this family, to see my friends and... Um, I am just so proud of you, Todd, and what you've done, and Debbie, and what you've done here at the church, and uh, love you guys, and I'm so appreciative of the opportunity. Thank you. Geez, you could go somewhere and be somebody if you just had a little more energy. <laughs> this, is, this is why modern day beat Santa Ana in football right there. It's that level of energy.